Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. You can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Our scripture in Colossians chapter, excuse me, chapter 3. I encourage you to keep our program tonight in much prayer. Pray for the young people. They did very well at the rehearsal yesterday, and um, they're excited to be able to present the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So pray for them and for those who would come that they might understand what Christ has done for them in coming to be their Savior. Also would mention that our um, Christmas Eve service will be our regular morning service at 11. There will be no Sunday school. We'll be meeting together that day and have a little uh, different service than we were used to that Sunday. But if you're able to join us, Christmas Eve service will be our regular time at 11 that Sunday morning. I also want to mention as well that if any of you who take advantage of our um, podcasting or webcasting, we are no longer video putting video on Facebook any longer, and we are sticking with just our podcast, the audio. It's available on our website, and um, in the next few weeks we'll be transitioning to live streaming that, that uh, the audio, excuse me, and uh, for those who may be at home and want to join us live, that will be uh, recording that live, hopefully, if, if our internet cooperates and uh, so on, we're going to give that a try. But if you want to catch the messages you've missed and keep up with the study that God's uh, leading us through, then uh, the podcast is available on our website. Okay, Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves also are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian nor Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, longsuffering, Bearing with one, another, with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the victory and the new life that we have in Christ. We're thankful, Father, that you as an almighty and holy God, though you, did, though you required a penalty for sin, Father, and you required cleansing from sin, Father, you, you, did not, you did not exact that from us. Instead, you exacted that from your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate him this time of year, Father, we, we recognize the Lord Jesus himself stated his purpose for coming was to seek and to save that which was lost. 
and he came to, to offer himself as, as a sacrifice. That's why he became a man, Father. We're thankful for that. His willingness to humble himself and, and become a man and then become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And Father, today we rejoice in him and are thankful for him and we seek to proclaim him. And Father, we pray as we study your word together today that we would see more of your provision and grace, all you've given us in Christ, that we'd be rejoicing in our eternal home going as we look forward to an eternal glory. And in the meantime, Father, may we be inspired, encouraged, and empowered to carry on your work, the great commission of making disciples and reaching the lost for Christ. And Father, we pray even our program tonight might, might accomplish that end. We pray that the young people could be encouraged in their privilege of presenting the, the greatest story ever told. And that those who come might be also challenged and encouraged with the love of God, your great love, such an amazing love and amazing grace that you sent your son to rescue sinners. And Father, we rejoice in that. And Father, we just pray for those who are with us today. Pray that we would together learn your word with in, a, in a unified heart and spirit, that you would be our teacher and guide. And for those who are away from us today, Father, wherever they are, that you would watch over them, comfort them, strengthen them, encourage them, and uphold them. And for those fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are worshiping together and learning your word, I pray that they too, along with us, could sit at your feet today and be taught of you, that you might be glorified in the things that you can impart into our lives. So direct today for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's turn back to Genesis 39. Genesis chapter 39. We'll continue here in our study of Joseph. Genesis 39. For any of you who have read through or are familiar with the story of Joseph, you recognize his life is a series of ups and downs, isn't it? There are low points and high points, some very low points and some very high points. And it's much like life, because that really kind of describes all of us, isn't it? Because since we live in a broken world, there are, we have times when we uh, have those down times of life, those times of despair and discouragement, of, of, of failure and indifference. And we have times of success and, and times we are walking with the Lord. And that seems to characterize our, our lives. You know, it's always easy to be thankful when we're on the upside, isn't it? You know, when the sun's shining and the weather's good and, it, you know, everything's going well. It's just we're so thankful for those times. But it's a challenge to be thankful when, the, when we're on the downside. Because we forget that our thankfulness is not rooted in our circumstances, but instead in our relationship with our God and the care of our God and the sovereignty of our God. And that's where this story comes in. Because Joseph's life was much like ours, in its, in its good and bad. But God, through this, this journey of Joseph, taught him a very important thing, something we find in verse 2 of this chapter, which we'll see repeated throughout this account, is that the Lord was with Joseph. Through the highs and the lows, through the good and the bad, the circumstances did not change the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. And that's, and that's what we find in this chapter. We find also that Joseph's God's presence in Joseph began to be visible. We find in verse 3 that others saw the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. It had made a difference in, 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 his, in how he lived life and how he, how he lived before others. And that's really what God wants to accomplish. He wants to reassure us that no matter where life, what turns life takes, God is with us. That often repeated promise. He's with us. He is watching over us. He is sovereign over us. And that we can find a rest, and a peace 
and a stability in spite of the calamities we go through. So let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 1 of and read the first six verses here in chapter 39, where it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord is with Joseph, and he was a success, successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made him all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and of all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the food which he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome in form and appearance. You know, we begin this chapter, and really, at a, at a low point in Joseph's life. He's, you know, sold by his brothers. He's sold again at the beginning of the chapter. And think of the despair he's in. You know, he's away from home. He's sold, rejected by his family, being sold from one party to the next. You know, he goes from, he, you know, he went from father's favorite to the hatred of his brothers, from dreams that seemed to indicate that he was going to rule over his family to being sold into slavery and from a family who were recipients of a promise from God that they were going to be a great nation and a great people and be greatly blessed to serving an Egyptian military official. Now, we don't know what Joseph's attitude was during this time. The Bible doesn't describe Joseph's attitude as he went through these trials, these challenges. But it definitely was a time which could have been characterized by despair and discouragement and hopelessness. If anything would do it to you, this would be it, wouldn't it? But what we do see in this passage is God's involvement in his life. That's where God puts the emphasis here, where God was in all of this calamity that was going on around Joseph in his life. And God was teaching Joseph that his God was there. He was watching over him. He was caring for him. We saw that in the phrase I mentioned in verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph. But we also see in verse 2 that he was a, following that phrase, that he was a successful man. And that's not an accident that those two phrases go together. God made him successful. In verse 3, we see it amplified when it says that God made all he did to prosper in his hand. He was successful. He, everything he did was prosperous. And in verse 5, we see that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And then also in verse 5, we see that the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. And God great, brought great blessing and brought to Joseph this promotion. And it's kind of like, wow, he goes from kind of rags to riches, I mean, other than being a servant, he goes from despair to promotion here in the house of Potiphar. This is truly a rags to riches account. And it's not because Joseph was a self-made man. There's nothing in here that indicates that Joseph, you know, was a really uh, 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 educated, you know, successful businessman. Instead, the emphasis here is because of the Lord. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord made what he did to prosper. The Lord was at work, and the Lord blessed him, blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. Now we remember in the Abrahamic covenant that this was promised to Jacob, to, you know, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. In Genesis 12, 2, it says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And so this is a fulfillment, at least of the, in part, of that promise that God was making 
the family of Abraham, here Joseph, a blessing, and blessing the household and affairs of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. The unsaved pagan Egyptian official was benefiting from the life of a godly person, a person that God was blessing and that God was with. And that's really, you know, in a quick application, the effect that believers can have on this life when we're walking with the Lord, when we're enjoying the Lord. It's not that we're under the Abrahamic covenant and that's being fulfilled, but we know that God instructs the believer to, to march to a different drumbeat, to walk according to his word. That is to live with integrity, to live with honesty, to be, de to be dependable, to be faithful, to value hard work, to be responsible. All those biblical principles are what God seeks to insert into our lives, and that makes us different than the rest of the world, and it, it makes us valuable to the, whatever endeavor we're engaged in. And that's why Colossians chapter 3 tells us to serve not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And when we do our work as unto the Lord, when we do it as a, in, a res, in a respect of God's ways, it actually brings blessing to the world around us. You know, there's scriptures that seem to indicate that when the Holy Spirit is taken out of this age, day and age in which we live, when the restrainer is taken away, that evil is going to run rampant. And we believe that being taken away is the rapture. Because when you and I go home to be with the Lord, the Spirit of God goes with us, and the influence that the believers ought to have on the culture and on people is removed. Which indicates that when we are here, if we shine as lights for Jesus Christ, we can bring blessing to those around us, isn't it? That's what a wonderful, wonderful privilege. And this was very real in Joseph's life because verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord is with him. His master, the Egyptian, gave credit to God for his success. He saw that. He made the connection. <laughs> what a wonderful testimony. I mean, I couldn't think there, would be, there could be no greater performance review from your boss than to say, I know you're successful because you're following Jesus Christ. What a tremendous performance review. And that's what Jesus does for us when we're willing to apply his principles to our public life, isn't it? He makes himself visible through us. And therefore, Joseph was promoted. Now, not all believers are going to be highly promoted. That may not always happen. But when we walk with the Lord, enjoy the Lord, and follow his word, the integrity he instills in us and the work ethic makes us a desirable contributor to whatever we're involved in. So this was a high point. Joseph went from you know, being sold and sold again into slavery to a promotion, at least a measure of, of enjoyment here in his journey. But however, we do know life changes quickly because after the highs comes trouble, doesn't it? And that's what happens here. Verse 7, let's pick it up. And it came to pass after these things, and it seems to always come to pass, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has com committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her, and so on. Now verse 6 indicates to us in the verse 6 that Joseph was an attractive man. And uh, which maybe indicates in this story that that's not always an asset, by the way. It might be better to be frumpy and ugly than it is to be appealing and attractive. <laughs> if you want to make a real obscure op application of this story. 
But what we really see here is Satan's effort to discredit and destroy God's people and to thwart his plans. That's always the case under the scenes, isn't it? In this evil intent. And Satan wanted to come into Joseph's life and steamroll him and bring him to the, to the depths of defeat. And he brought the right woman because this woman was relentless, wasn't it? Repeated over and over, the temptation presented itself to Joseph over and over, day after day, this temptation presents itself. And that's how it often occurs in our lives. We never escape it. We live in a, in a sinful world that presents various forms of temptation, and not always sexual, such as in this passage. Sometimes it's materialism, sometimes it's the pride of life, as 1 John 2 tells us. But there are always those, th those temptations that present themselves over and over again. But in this case, Joseph recognized it. You know, he, and, and, and the Bible tells us that fornication or adultery, sexual sins, are described in 1 John 2.16 as a lust of the flesh. That means our flesh desires it. Satan knows how to appeal to our weaknesses. You know, we all have besetting sins, and they come in various forms, forms of temptation. And Satan knows how to, how to target those, those areas of weakness because our flesh likes the things of the world. That's why Galatians 6 tells us, you know, when, when Paul talks about victory, he says, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. In other words, the, the, the death of Christ separated me from that dependency upon the world to gratify my needs. But it is, it is there. It is normal. It is part of our frame. God understands that's the way sin is acts in our lives. And lust has derailed many good men, both Christian and non-Christian. And, and the amazing thing is, is that, that those lusts are expected by this world to be fulfilled. It becomes normal, hasn't it? More and more and more. Well, we know within marriage, one man and one woman marriage, by the way, the oneness of physical in intimacy is attended by God for pleasure. But it also pictures Christ's lo love for this church, his sacrificial love for the church, and the intimacy we have with our Savior. It's a tremendous privilege and responsibility to honor the bonds of marriage. But outside of marriage, it's nothing more than selfish. Empty, unsatisfying, it brings guilt and shame and all kinds of, at least all kinds of other dishonoring behavior and ultimately dishonors God. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, where we see that, that discourse about the decline of humanity into the depths of sin, where we see God giving them over, giving them over, giving them over to the desires of their heart, Romans 1.29 reveals that one of those evil pursuits is sexual immorality. And then in verse 32, he tells us this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. And, and I think we're maybe beyond approving of those, we're to the point of promoting that kind of lifestyle in our culture today, are we not? We've come a long way, baby, so to speak, haven't we? We've really gone to the depths of depravity. That's where our culture is today, and that's how far we have fallen, and that's why we're like Joseph. Those temptations assault us from every direction, every day, whether it's, whether it's sexual, materialistic, whether it's to do with pride or whatever the thing, whatever our weaknesses will be, in this broken world, we are continually assaulted by the temptation to sin. But you know, God wants us to overcome. I think we just sang that, didn't we? We talked about being overcome through the Lord Jesus Christ. God has provided for us to be able, be able to overcome. And, and what we find in, in Joseph here is an example of a man who overcame, who resisted temptation in his life and lived victoriously. And what we see here, just I think just four things especially just stand out here, is first of all in verse 8, where this began, 
He was immediately and determinedly decisive. He refused. Immediately, he refused. It tells us here in verse 8, when, when she solicited him. He refused. He just said no, immediately. He didn't linger and consider the, uh, the, consider the problem and at the same time thinking, well, am I going to get caught or what should I do? Or he just said no, immediately. He knew he didn't give himself a chance to think on it, linger on it, or consider it. He made an immediate, decisive decision. I think that's important. And then, then we see in this passage a few things that he was, in regards to a, being guided by a biblical moral code. He was guided by a biblical moral code. He had some standards, biblical standards that he respected. First of all, we see in verse 8 that he respected the integrity of his, of his master's marriage. He says, you belong to him. And I, he respected that. He recognized that adultery would be an offense towards her husband, that it would hurt, it would be offense towards him, and he respected his, the integrity of his marriage. Second thing we see, he also valued the integrity of trust. He says even, he entrusted me with everything in his house. And he trusted me, and I'm not going to violate that. He, he recognized the value of trust, and not only building that trust, but maintaining that trust. He did, not, he did not want to betray the trust of Potiphar. Third thing in his, in his moral code, his biblical code, he considered a great wickedness in verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness? He, rec- he called sin for what it was. It's not only wicked, it's a great wickedness. You know, he says, it's just plain wrong. And it's like, wow, where do you find people like that? They're just going to say, it's just plain wrong. We have too many people today, sometimes believers included, that think, well, that's just the way the culture is, and that's just how it is, and we're just going to, you know, we're just going to play with it around the edges at least. And he says, no, it's just wrong. It's a great wickedness. You see, the flesh is guided by our own personal moral codes, are guided by what we want. And it's, it's instead the consideration of whether it's right or wrong is, will I get caught? Or everybody else does it? And so on. Instead of saying, the Bible just says, it's sin, it's wrong, and that's why he refused. And so he was guided by this moral code. Thirdly, he was guided by a desire to honor God. Why should you do this great wickedness and sin against God? He says, I want to honor God. Why should I sin against him? And it wasn't that he was saying here, you know, God's going to get me if I do this. I'm going to pay the, pay the price. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to reap what I sow. And, you know, God's going to get even with me. Or I've got to face him in the judgment seat of Christ or whatever, any of those things. He just said, no, I don't want to sin against my creator, my savior, my, my deliverer, my God. He says, it's, I'm not going to sin against God. He lived in the reality of the presence of the guidance of God. And apparently what Joseph had seen in these years of ascension in Potiphar's house was the fact that God was with him. And God was faithful to him, that God loved him, was watching over him and caring for him. And he was maybe confused about why he came to this point in his life. But he says, I'm not going to sin against God. I'm going to honor him. You know, it's normal in our everyday experience for children to want to honor their parents. You know, people have said over and over again that the one thing kids want is parental approval. And in some cases, it seems to be especially with men, when they never seem to achieve their father's approval, they often go long into adulthood seeking to establish the approval of their father. And that should be normal for the Christian as well, to find the approval of our father. Now, we know God does approve. God is going to reward faithful service 
And that's what Joseph lived with. He lived with the desire to honor his God. He lived in the reality of God's presence in his life. He says, no, I'm not going to sin against God. And that's unique today, isn't it? Even amongst believers. Instead of worrying about getting caught or, you know, am I going to feel guilty? It's, no, I'm gonna, not going to sin against God, offend a holy God. You know, that takes selfish reasons completely out of the picture, doesn't it? It simply says, no, I'm not going to sin against God. And that's why the last thing, number four, of the things Joseph teaches us here is that he fled. He just, when it came to a point where he's cornered, he just put his running shoes on and bolted. And he probably did a faster 100 than Usain Bolt ever did. Got out of there. He fled. He ran for his life. He knew what was at stake. And he physically removed himself from the place of temptation. And that's an important lesson. Because sometimes that's required. Sometimes the best thing, especially in areas of weakness, is remove ourselves from the, from the opportunity for temptation. Don't go there. And we need to do that from those potential influences that could affect our attitudes and our choices, our mindset. We think it doesn't affect us, but it does. And when you listen to the wrong music that promotes immorality and all sorts of worldly behavior, read the wrong literature, watch the wrong entertainment, it affects you. If you, if you measure it, you watch what kind of person you are after filling your minds with trash as opposed to filling your mind with, with good things. As the Bible tells us in Philippians 4, 8, think on these things. It makes a difference in your attitude. Maybe you've recognized that in your life. When you listen to the wrong stuff that influences your thinking in the wrong direction, it's going to create wrong attitudes, isn't it? Psalms 101.3, the psalmist says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Interesting, isn't it? It will not cling to me. He recognizes that when we entertain these things, it clings. Sin, sinful attitudes and behaviors and perspectives you know, are like Velcro. They stick. And it takes a while to rub them out, get rid of them, does it not? So Joseph fled. And look, we see these four things in his life. He was immediately decisive. He didn't linger. He lived according to a biblical moral code, especially recognizing the great wickedness of sin. He lived with the desire to honor God, and he fled. He avoided the opportunity to yield in a moment of weakness. Wonderful lessons here, too. But I want us to consider this morning as well as what more does the New Testament say about this area of overcoming, of resisting temptation. And I want to just look at a few passages. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just, we'll go through just a few things, I think, briefly, because God is well aware of the battle that we're in. And he values victory, the victory he secured for us through the cross. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee youthful lust. We find that same word. I turned there because we found the same word that we found in Joseph's account, to flee. Put your running shoes on when it comes to sin and temptation. But I think the, the real message here, the important part of this message is the other side of that movement, and that is to pursue. It's to pursue. Because if we don't pursue the things of God, we're not going to have the strength to flee and resist. Those go together. You can't have one with the, without the other and live victoriously, can we? 
See the, see, the protection of fleeing is a result of pursuing the things of God and finding our strength in Him. And in reality, one is not going to flee if they're not already moving towards the things of God. It's when we are in neutral, when we are apathetic and indifferent, when we haven't be- spent time in God's Word and prayer and with the saints of God. All those things are intended to help us be strong, that we are susceptible. And that's when the enemy can often ensnare us. Pursuit. What are we pursuing in life? That's the question here. What's in our sights these days? And when, the most, when our most important pursuits are other things other than the things of God, we find ourselves susceptible. Pursuing the things of God, looking for righteousness and godliness and so on in our lives. And when we do that, we are protected. And God gives us the ability to flee, to resist sin when it presents itself. We're close by. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. I think the second thing the Bible tells us here is what are we occupied with? I'm calling this occupation. That means what do we, what do we fill our minds with? Psalm 119.11, that well-known verse says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Simple formula. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, God, so the psalmist recognizes that in order to avoid sin, I need to fill my heart with God's word. Here in 1 John 2, John is talking, we just looked at this recently on Wednesday night, and John here is talking about levels of maturity. And in verse 14, he says, I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Well, how have they become strong and overcome the wicked one? The word of God abides in them. John recognizes that. He sets that out as an example or as a, as, as, a, as a precept, as a dynamic that needs to be true in our life. The Word of God needs to abide in us. That's what's need to fill our hearts and minds and lives. And then we can overcome the wicked one. And so we are to be occupied with God's Word. It needs to be fresh in our minds because if, if we don't fill it with the things of God, Satan will gladly fill it with trash, will he not? Because we're going to be occupied with something in our minds. And we need to see our lives, even though we often are occupied throughout our day with our responsibilities and getting through the day and so on, our plans for the future, it needs to be all set in the backdrop of thy word have I hid in my heart to give us the right perspective and the right priorities and passions in our pursuits. So that involves the relationship with, with God's word. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which so easily ensnare us, and let us run, there's pursuit, with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and so on. And so we're to be looking unto Jesus. We're to keep our focus on him, to keep perspective in life. This involves an occupation with our Savior. That's, that's the relational aspect of our Savior, that we, have all, that, that we live life with an active focus and, act, and, and, a, and a consistent dependence upon our Savior and our relationship with Him. We look to Him every day. You know, right after Paul was saved, he said these, these, these words in Acts 9, verse 6, he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? And that's a great, a great way to start your day. I put that little postcard, I got a postcard with that on it one day somewhere, and I put it up on my bulletin board, because that's the way to start the day. Lord, what will you have me to do? Not, Lord, help me to get my plans done today, and my, my list is usually long, and I don't get through a, a percentage of it. Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to order my day? It's looking unto Jesus that keeps us from, from following 
the dictates of the flesh, isn't it? So occupation. Are we occupied with Jesus Christ and his word? Is it filling our perspective and our desires every day? The third thing that I think that's involved in overcoming is surrender. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Simple formula. I, I just quote that because we look at that, I mentioned it often. How shall we not fulfill the lust of the, lust of the flesh? To walk in the spirit. To walk in the spirit is to walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? How does he work in our lives? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 2, he teaches us the deep things of God. He brings us conviction, teaching, and instruction through his word. And our responsibility is to submit to it. To walk in the spirit is to surrender to him, to submit to him, to allow him to guide my life, which means I allow the Bible to guide my life as he teaches me, as he leads me, as he brings a biblical precept to bear upon my life in the middle of my day. We say, okay, Lord, you have, have it your way, so to speak. We surrender to it. You know, often when that occurs in our lives, when we're at a crossroads of decision, and we think about, hmm, what should I do, what should I do, what should I, what should I go, what should I do, and, you know, and then we think, we, we go through multiple, multiple choice options, and oh, I could do this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, when, but, when, but when point A is, thus saith the Lord, there's no, there's no B, B, C, or D. There's only one option for the Christian. I'm going to follow, thus says the Lord, because the Bible lights my path. And that means surrender. I'm going to surrender to God's will. And that needs to become a habit in our lives, an everyday thing, an every moment thing, as we surrender to the guidance of the Spirit. And what a wonderful thing we have is to have God himself, God the Holy Spirit, in dwelling in our lives, willing to lead us, to keep us from the lusts of the flesh, to keep us from getting ourselves in trouble and turning, going in the wrong direction, to, to, to make Christ real in my life, to empower me in my life, and to produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life. What a wonderful thing we have. But we must surrender to His Word. Not excuse it away, but surrender. A fourth thing involved, I believe, is self-denial. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, self-denial involves claiming the freedom that Jesus has secured in his victory over sin and death. Not I, but Christ. When we allow Christ to live in us, we can deny self. And that's why the passage we read in Colossians 3 tells us to put to death our members. Mortify our members, one version says. Put to death our members, which are on the earth. Self-denial. But that, that's only possible because Colossians 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, at the cross, Christ broke the power of sin and freed us. You know, we sing in one of our songs this morning that the chains have been broken. We're no longer chained to have to respond to life in a way that fulfills the lust of our flesh. Instead, we have new life in Christ. We're new creations in Christ. And therefore, we can put to death our members. And that's required to say no to, our, no to ourselves. But when we do so in the power of God based upon the cross of Christ. Here in 1 John, jump over to chapter 5. But the fifth thing I think the Bible here instructs us in is to walk by faith. Verse 4 says, whatever, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith. Faith involves believing God's word is right and in his way is best. It's faith. That's what overcomes the world. Because Satan was always going to offer an option to the light of God's word. 
an option that might seem good, might seem reasonable, might seem like everybody's doing it. Satan always offers an option to the right decision. But faith says, no, I'm going to believe God's word to be true. It's absolutely required. To be absolutely convinced, and that's before you get into trouble, by the way. To be absolutely convinced that God's word is always right and it's always best for me, and I'm going to follow it by God's grace. I'm going to believe it to be true. And even when it's inconvenient, when I don't feel like it, when the kids are crabby, kicking and screaming and tired and I don't want to do it, I'm going to go or be what, what God wants me to be and trust him to take care of the details. That's faith. That's, that's allowing God to run your lives instead of ourselves. And Satan will always give us a reasonable alternative. But how do we overcome? Moving in the wrong direction? Faith. Trust in, trust in our God to always know what's best in our lives. Now, those, those are just some of the things that we see in the New Testament in regards to living victoriously over sin. But the message behind that, and as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, the message of the cross is that God has freed us as well as delivered us from our sins. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, of our God and Father, excuse me. You see, this verse not just doesn't mention deliverance from hell, so to speak. Instead, it mentions deliverance from this present evil age. And this age is evil, isn't it? It's ugly today. So Jesus not only rescues us from hell through the cross, and we are delivered when we put our faith in Jesus as the one who paid for our sin so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and assured of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But salvation also... Or excuse me, the cross is also about deliverance from this present evil world. God, you rescued us to deliver us. And how many Christians go on for years and years and years in apathy and indifference, not realizing that there's power in the blood, that there's victory at the cross, that there's, that there's strength in our God. And, and that's what God wants us to see. In fact, that's what the Christian life is all about. You see, the cross secured from us rescue from all the bad stuff that, are, that would destroy us, the bad stuff that our flesh craves, but the cross freed us from that. So today as we rejoice in our Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's table together as a family, let's not only celebrate the eternal deliverance he's provided from hell, and there is no greater deliverance, is there, to know our sins are forgiven and that we're on our way to heaven. But let's remember as well, that that cross secured our freedom from sin, something we couldn't escape, sin which ensnares us and disables us. Jesus broke that power and provided in his word, and not only we saw it in the story of Joseph, but some of the dynamics we saw in the New Testament, things that can be real in our lives to help us to live freely. And he's purchased it with his own blood. You know, I was reminded... One other day, they, someone on TV ran an ad about rescue dogs. You know, dogs that have been rescued from bad situations. You know, and, and they want you to adopt a dog. That's the whole idea. Or a pet or whatever. And they always make them look so forlorn and lonely, puppy eye sad, without an owner, without a home. And it reminds me of the unsaved in reality, isn't it? Because life is empty and meaningless apart from making our home with God. Rejoicing in his love and his care for us. And he is in essence saying to us, come on home. I have a home for you. 
I have a place where you can find joy and happiness and peace and you can wag your tail and, you know, and, and have that big doggy smile on your face because you are right with your God and you are loved and cared for and protected. You see, and that love was expressed through the cross we celebrate today. The victory Christ won through his death and resurrection so that we could come home, that we could be forgiven and call God our Father and find acceptance, love, and care, and nurture. So we could be protected and helped in our daily life. And we could enjoy the focus and provision of his love and attention that he would gi give us as his children. And then live that freedom to the fullest. And all because he prayed to the price to free us from sin and hell. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today for the cross of Christ. And as we move to the Lord's table, Father, we are so thankful that the Lord Jesus was willing to become a man, first of all, to leave the glories of heaven, to step into humanity, to take upon him a body so that he might sacrifice himself for us. And Father, we don't understand how it happened, but you tell us at the cross, you laid on him the iniquity of us all. You tell us at the cross that the power of sin was broken in our lives. You've, you, you've broken the chains that we, that we experience. And Father, instead you've given us freedom, freedom to live as we ought, freedom to live as your children, freedom to walk in the light. Father, we're so thankful we rejoice in that today. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, as you tell us to, as we remember him, as we proclaim him, may our hearts rejoice in you. Father, it's a unique thing in a way for us to celebrate the reason Christ came while well, we celebrate his birth even today in our program tonight. Father, for he came to rescue us. And that rescue was fulfilled in the cross. And Father, we rejoice in that now together in Jesus' name.